Pastor Jeff has has been speaking into the life of this church for years. But especially in these last few months, as we were looking at the 14ers and, and what we're calling springtime as a series starting in February, God started breathing stuff into us and into you. And we're writing this stuff down. And Jeff is a writer, as you know. And, and tell me a little bit about what you started feeling as we were having these amazing meetings and God was showing up in unique ways. Well, I just think that we, we've enjoyed such a, an amazing journey here in Timberline. But this, this year, what we're wanting to do is to be increasingly intentional about our vision. And the vision's where you're going. The strategy is how you're going to get there. And so just in collaboration uh, as a team together, it's just been great. And, and a sense of God being in the room with us, without being weird about that, just a sense of the inspiration of God helping us. And so uh, as we've been doing this and starting to unpack these 14ers that we want to, to climb, I think it's just a really exciting season. We, we've had, I think I brought you 11 14ers that we want to climb this year. And these are goals of vision for Timberline Church. We, even this week, um, we were able to categorize some of those. Like when you think about prayer, worship, waiting on God, anointing with oil, some of the things that I had told you already in the list, we were able to put those in a category that, that we're, we're having a one word over all three or four of those things. And so we're going to not have 11, even though we will still, we have 11 goals within those 14ers, but we're going to come up with a number hopefully by the next week or two and some words that you can identify. We'll put them in print. We're going to ask you to take them with you all year. We will be referring back to them. Do you think there are seasons in the life of a person or a church or even a, a country where God's favor or blessing, He just kind of pours something out? Yeah, I, I, I think that what, what we are doing is we, we can't create the blessing of God. Right. Only He can bless. But we can posture ourselves individually and together in a way that, if you like, creates space for God to bless. And I think that's what we're, we're doing. And... Um, I think our collective anticipation is of a, of a great year together. Today we're looking at the, the, the mountain of, of worship and, and what that means. And, and it's a great story. And by the way, you have some friends here. This weekend I met some people from England. Really? And they had this real English accent. And I oh, said, okay. you guys are so fortunate because you're going to be able to understand our speaker today. The only people who do. <laughs> no, we all understand you. In fact, I love the accent. Sometimes I'm kind of jealous because I like your accent too. <laughs> Don't you love? Would you let this guy know you love him? He's a wonderful man. Love you, buddy. You too. Well, it's really good to see y'all. Well, as you've been hearing, we're thinking about the mountain of worship and prayer. Let's jump in right away. Mark chapter. 6, Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. It says this, Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard, and struggling against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. 
They were all terrified when they saw him, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. You know, when I, when I read this, I don't want to be irreverent in any way, but walking on water, I mean, that looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? I, I think it would be an incredible experience to actually be able to do that. And how many of you have ever actually tried? If you've ever tried to, to do that? I, I tried on one occasion. Uh, I'd read this passage. I thought, walking on water, that, like, that looks like fun. And Kay and I were staying at a hotel and the swimming pool was deserted. So I went down to the pool. I put my swimsuit on because faith without works is dead. <laughs> and I stepped onto the surface of the water. And how many knew that I sank? Yeah, I, I, I sank. But it looks like a lot of fun. Here in this story, everybody, Jesus really does walk on water. What's the context? Well, the context is that there is a storm. It's a terrible storm. Known in the Arabic as the Sharkia, the shark storm. A storm that would suddenly come up in the Galilee uh, late afternoon, early evening. Seasoned fishermen were terrified of this. And Mark tells us the disciples were straining at the oars, it says in the NIV. Uh, The word there literally means in torment. They were terrified. Now, they've been in this situation before. Just a couple of chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 4, they're in a storm, and Jesus is in the boat with them, and he's asleep, and they're irritated uh, about that, and he takes authority. But in this situation, he is not with them. He has sent them ahead, they're in the boat, he's on the mountainside, and he's praying. But he sees them in distress, And he walks on the water, and there's something strange here, because it says that he intended to pass them by, not to get in the boat at all. What's going on? I would like to suggest that he is showing them his power. You see, he's just fed the 5,000. Now think about that. Just as Moses had experienced the feeding of the multitude in the desert, with the manna from heaven. Now, Jesus has fed the people with bread. He's walking on water, just as Moses walked through the parted waters of the Red Sea. So Jesus is showing himself to be, if you will, the new Moses, leading his people out in the exodus away from the captivity of sin. And then the language that he uses, take courage, I am here, it is I. This is exactly the same language that God used to Moses when he revealed himself to him in the Old Testament. What's happening here is that Jesus is giving his disciples a glimpse of who he is. But when you pan the camera back, before he does any of that, he prays. Unlike the other Gospels, Mark only records Jesus praying three times. It's always at night. It's always in a lonely place. It's always separated from his disciples. They're always confused and bewildered. They were pretty good at that. 
And he's always at a point of critical decision making. The other Gospels have Jesus praying a lot more. Mark focuses in on these episodes. Jesus prayed. And most people, 51% of all Americans in a recent survey, in a recent survey said that they believed completely, I quote, in prayer. A study was done back in 1988 by the University of California. 393 coronary care patients were prayed for, but it was a double-blind test. Nobody knew who was being prayed for. It was a completely clinical survey. The results of that were so startling that every TV network and every newspaper, major newspaper in this country, covered that survey. Of the group prayed for, uh, significantly fewer died, uh, fewer needed the most potent drugs, nobody had to be put on life support. Now, I'm saying that prayer is effective. I'm not just saying prayer is some magic formula that always works in some guaranteed way. But the reality is that we believe in prayer, we know that prayer is effective, but, but isn't it hard? I mean, I, I've got a confession to make. I spend a lot of time here making confessions. I'm not very good at it. You say, well, you're preaching about it. I know. It's awkward. I'm not very good at prayer. Uh, my mind drifts. Anybody else? Your mind drifts? You know, you, I start to pray and then I think, wonder what's for lunch. <laughs> Anyone like that? Or, uh, you know, I, I never pray while kneeling because I'm going to go to sleep. I'll be face down on the rug, you know, within... 45 seconds. And, and then I feel guilty because I read these books written by major prayer warriors. Irritating. You know, some guy 300 years before there was anything on TV goes into the woods and crawls into the bowels of a log and prays for a month. That's never going to happen to me. I'd be in the log for 10 minutes and come out with wood lice and my underwear. It's not going <laughs> to happen and please don't focus on that unfortunate picture <laughs> and then some of us are uncomfortable with asking the late great Dallas Willard said that asking is the, at the heart of prayer asking and some of us are nervous about asking asking like we're grown up now we don't like to ask we just had our grandkids out here for Christmas two weeks of joy and chaos in equal measure I tell you what, at the end of that two weeks, our house looked like a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. <laughs> looked like the Battle of Armageddon had happened in there. But I learned this from my grandsons. They are not afraid to ask. And they are not afraid to receive. I give Stanley or Alex a candy bar. They do not go into crisis. Granddad, we are not worthy to receive this confectionery. For we have not cleaned our rooms since birth. They ask easy, they receive easy. Some of us are nervous about this. So why are we emphasizing prayer at this time as a church? Let's dive in here. First of all, we're doing this because we see that prayer was a core foundation in Jesus' life. Prayer was a core foundation in Jesus' life. Why did he pray? Some people say, well, he only prayed for, to give us an example because he's the son of God, so he didn't really need to pray. I think that's wrong. Jesus prayed because he needed to pray. Jesus did life 
in exactly the same way that we do life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sinless, yes. But he prayed because he needed to be in relationship with his Father. I sometimes hear preachers talk about Jesus being God with skin on. That's theologically inadequate. In a way that we can't really fully understand at all, Jesus was fully God but fully man. And he obviously limited himself. God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. Jesus was not omnipresent. He had to walk to places. And so Jesus did life fully as a human being, and prayer was a vital part of that. I think sometimes we, we think prayer is a kind of an optional thing, a bit like, bit like putting sequins on a motorcycle helmet. A very odd illustration. I'm not sure where I got it. But. Or prayers like it's for extreme emergency circumstances. You know when you see those little red boxes and it says, break glass in the event of an emergency. How many of you like me? There's no emergency. You just want to break the glass. And I think there's a danger that we see prayer as some kind of optional spiritual luxury or something that we resort to when we're in trouble. It wasn't that way with Jesus. He prayed regularly, often withdrawing Luke 5 to lonely places and praying. It was part of his everyday life. He prayed to the Father. He didn't have faith in faith or even just faith in prayer in an abstract way, but his prayer was directed to the Father. He prayed for others, for children, for his followers, for us. He prayed with others. Luke 9, he took Peter, James and John with him to a mountain to pray. He prayed alone, often withdrawing into isolation. He prayed indoors, in the synagogue. He prayed outdoors, on the mountain. He prayed short prayers like the so-called Lord's or Disciples' Prayer, which you can pray in about 90 seconds. Sometimes he prayed all night, Luke chapter 6. He taught persistence in prayer, that we should always pray and not give up, Luke 18. Jesus experienced that not all prayers, including his own, are answered in the way that we would like. Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, let this cup pass from me, and it did not happen. Jesus prayed. And I think what we're wanting to do is just re-establish prayer in our own lives personally and then together. We want to just prioritize that. Can I just say, if you're challenged by that, and I am, don't, don't go out of here saying, that's it, I will arise at 4 a.m. every morning and pray for four hours. We can do that. We can make lofty objectives. I just got this new rowing machine. It is an apparatus of the devil. And I sat on that thing and I got all excited and I thought, I'm going to row 10,000 meters every day and we'll have the body of a bronzed god. <laughs> 2,000 meters later, I felt the need to revise my objective. Here's what we do. We say, I believe Christians should pray every day for an hour. Well, good for you. There's not much point in believing it and not praying at all. How many know it's better to pray for five minutes a day and pray through the day as you walk through the day? 
It's better to do that than believe in praying for an hour, but not praying at all. Let's be realistic about this. And we want to help equip each other with some further weekend messages that will help us to pray. Jesus prayed. It was a core foundation. Secondly, secondly, we're called to prayer personally and corporately. We're called to prayer personally and corporately. I've already mentioned that Jesus was going to walk by these guys. Now, he wants to show them his power. But I don't think this is just about display for the purpose of display. I look at this text and I think that Jesus is wanting to nudge them into them exercising authority. Do you remember feeding at the 5,000 crisis? Jesus says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. He's trying to edge them into living in the fullness of their identity. He wants to show them who he is, and he wants to show them who they are and can be. This is the point in the message where I feel slightly compelled to launch into a rendition of Akuna Matata. It's a wonderful thing, Akuna Matata. It means no worries for the rest of your days. Some of you are confused, thinking this comes from the Bible. No. It comes from the Lion King. How many know what I'm talking about? Scar, the evil Scar, is challenged by little Simba, who's terrified. Simba is the rightful heir to the Pride Lands. But Simba's dad, Mufasa, has died. Scar is now in charge. And suddenly, in the Lion King... Mufasa speaks from the clouds. I wish I could do the voice. Let me give this a try. Simba, you are my son, but you have forgotten who you are. You are my son, Simba. Remember who you are. Remember. I was practicing that for three hours yesterday. I tell you. My, my, my wife thought I was crazy. And Simba, get out of that voice, Simba, <laughs> restored to his identity, marches back to the Pride Lands to restore law and order. You see, we haven't got time to unpack it, but your identity in Christ, my identity in Christ will always be a matter of contention. Luke chapter 3, Jesus hears from the Father, this is my beloved Son, I am pleased with him. Prophetic affirmation of identity. Luke chapter 4, in the wilderness, the hiss of Satan, if you are the Son of God. Prophetic identity is affirmed and then immediately challenged and questioned. We have an identity in Christ corporately together to engage in prayer that unfolding history might be changed. We do it alone, we do it together. Years ago, uh, I was in a church, Ken and I were based in a church in Chichester in the south of England. We had a lot of young people in the church and we would have a prayer meeting and nobody would come really. Didn't like to pray. So we decided to call a prayer meeting that lasted seven days, 24 hours a day. We called it 24-7. We set up a prayer room and we invited people to sign up for 24-7. And people came. 
I mean, it was amazing. And we had a guy visiting us from Texas while we were doing that. And he said, I believe that what you're doing here in Chichester is going to go around the world. The 24-7 movement that was started in that little church, there are two books that have been written about it. I was there. It's now in 83 nations. It's gone around the world. In this coming year, we are going to emphasize prayer more. At the end of our weekend services, you're going to hear us talk about it more. During this year, we're going to, and we're figuring it out, but we're going to have a season of prayer and fasting church-wide. And I hope that we'll have a 24-7 season of prayer with a prayer room and people praying around the clock, signing up for an hour as we embrace afresh the calling to pray. Some of you are going, I could never do that. The thought of praying at 3 a.m. in the morning chills my heart. I fall asleep at 4 p.m., never mind 3 a.m., But I believe that together we can push forward for the kingdom. And then number three, exposing some myths about prayer. Sometimes we don't pray because we've got bad ideas about prayer. For example, I used to teach that prayer is a conversation. You know, I get up this morning and I I have this little conversation with God as if I say, Hello, Lord. And he says, Hello, Jeff. And I say, How are you today? And he says, I'm good. I'm God. It's the way it is. And I say, Lord, do you have any particular preferences concerning my attire today? And he says, yes, please. I'd like you to wear the brown jacket because it goes with those rather awesome cowboy boots you occasionally wear with shorts. (laughs) And I said, thank you so much, Lord. Have a good day. And also with you, he cried. It's not like that. 99.9% of the time, here's how it works for me. I say my stuff. I hear nothing. But I get a bit worried about those Christians with whom God is endlessly chatty. Does God speak? Yes, he does. There are impressions and nudges. And one time in my life only, an audible voice. Only one time. Many of us have never heard that. I got... By the way, the audible voice thing, I've not mentioned that before, but I think God sometimes does that kind of stuff for me because he knows I'm stupid. I think the angel Eric goes into the presence of God and says, it's Lucas again. They're talking about repelling. And the Lord says, no. Really? Let's do something awesome so he'll just remember that I'm around. But we can't build our lives on these things. And prayer is not an endless conversation. And and don't come up to me and say, well, are you suggesting God doesn't speak? Yes, he does. But let's not paint a picture of Christianity that is not true. What about this idea that, that God is in heaven listening to us? That's a great idea and a bad idea. God is in heaven, but he's not just in heaven. In fact, a better translation of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, a better translation would actually be our Father who is in the heavens. And the first heaven, theologically, is the air that surrounds your body. So yes, God is out there and God is right here. If we don't get that, prayer will be like lobbing snowballs at the moon. How many of you with me? I like the snow, but enough already. Has anybody like that? 
And if we believe the beautiful song from a distance, if we believe that it's just from a distance that God is watching us, prayer will be like lobbing snowballs at the moon. Is anyone out there, out there, out there, out there, out there? Can you hear me? Me, 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 me. God is out there and God is right here. What about this idea that, well, whatever needs to happen will happen anyway, so why should I bother? Anyone remember Doris Day? Okay, Sarah, Sarah. Not true. It's fatalism. Some people say, well, everything that happens is the will of God. No, it's not. Was it the will of God that Hitler do what he did? Is it the will, of, the will of God that women are abused and children are trafficked? No, it's not. Does God always get his way? No, he doesn't. That doesn't limit his power, but it says something about the nature of the universe. If God always gets his way, why would we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? By the way, Doris Day also sang that the future was not ours to see. Wrong again, Doris. Because the prophets spoke and they did see. Perhaps we need to think differently about prayer and about the marriage of God's sovereignty and the mystery linking the two with our responsibility in prayer. Number four. Number four, let's see that worship is a priority, not a formality. I was preaching in a church one time and the pastor introduced me by saying this. He said, the worship team finished and he said, he said, now we've got the preliminaries done with, let's hear the word. And I wanted to scream. Because worship, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the preliminaries. And we don't sing songs because we've got nothing better to do, so let's fill in some time. And it's not a spectator sport. Worship is a response to the call of God throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, that we come before God and worship Him. The heart of worship is sacrifice. In Genesis, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They fellowship, there's a snake in the grass, but quickly the patriarchs begin to build their altars. In Exodus, the tabernacle is established. People build their lives around worship. In Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the elaborate sacrificial system for worship is established. In established Israel, the temple is built as a centerpiece of the life of the nation. The psalmist repeatedly calls us, me, you, to energetic, expressive worship. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in the Lord rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 22 verse 3, God inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 2911, give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 32 and verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 98, verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In Psalm 150, there are 13 commands to us to worship the Lord. In the Gospels, Jesus is in his Father's house, prioritizing that. And in John 4, he says the Father looks for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. The early church gave themselves to such energetic worship that people thought they were drunk as a result. In the epistles, in Corinthians, order is given to worship. 
James calls us away from superficiality in worship. In Ephesians, there's the great vision of Christ and the call to worship. In Galatians, there's a defense of freedom in our worship. In Colossians, preventing super-spirituality coming into worship. In 1 Peter, the royal priesthood called to worship. In Hebrews, the call to the Holy of Holies in worship. In Revelation, the worshiping uh, community of God forever, where silence in heaven is so unusual that when it happens for half an hour, someone has to write it down and report it as significant. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt about it. I'm getting a bit passionate. We are called to worship the Lord. And let's not say I don't feel like it, because sometimes I don't feel like it, which is awkward when you're the pastor. Worship is not an expression of mood. It's a declaration of truth. That's why I think we should sing more songs about who God is and less songs about how we feel. I, I get a bit frustrated when I have to sing, you know, I'm happy, 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 I'm ecstatic, how about you? Because actually, how do we know collectively how we feel? And there are people in this building today, and you worship God, and frankly, you feel miserable. God bless you in your sacrifice. It is not about how we feel. It is about who God is. Well, the last thing is this, number five. What about fasting? Fasting. What about that? I don't like it. I think it's a spelling error. <laughs> I think the church has been mistaken for the last 2,000. It's not fasting, it's feasting. How many of you were with me in this? We could have a festival of feasting. Hand me another cheeseburger, honey. I'm doing this for Jesus. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Don't be offended. I'm kidding. It's fasting. It's there. In fact, Jesus said, when you fast, he assumed that we would. Why do we do that? Do we do that to twist the arm of God? No. Fasting is not about us. Excuse me, it's not about God. It's about us. It's about being intentional, making a declaration of dependency, allowing our schedule, which is so structured around food, to be interrupted as we give ourselves to prayer, having a clear purpose, coming in repentance. We're going to unpack this more. I want to say this right away, lest anyone misunderstand. Should a person with, an e with challenges with eating disorders fast? I suggest not. Because how, how much the enemy can twist even the holiest of things. If, if you've struggled with an eating disorder, don't fast food, fast something else. But allow a godly disruption to come into your life. Jesus prayed. May it be as we move forward together as a community that we grow personally and together in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray now. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. I want to invite you wherever you are seated to just whisper that prayer. God, show me, show me how to pray. Show me what prayer looks like in 
going through my day and those moments of quiet, muttered praise and telling you about my life and maybe those moments of separation and solitude of five minutes in the morning or praying the Lord's Prayer at night. Show me how to pray. We earnestly pray, Lord, show us as a community how to grow together in agreement in prayer. And if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you'd like to change that, it might be that right now, wherever you are, you just pray a prayer. You, can, you don't have to have a structured particular formula for that. It can be, it can be something like this. You might want to use this right now. Something like this. God, I need you. I cry out to you from my heart. I don't want to do life by myself anymore. I want to be part of your kingdom where you rule. I want to be part of your kingdom community. Forgive me cleanse me thank you Jesus for your work on the cross and your resurrection I respond to you hear this fragile humble prayer as I make that choice to be a follower of yours and just while while our heads are bowed let me say that at the end of the service I alluded to them earlier. Some wonderful people will be at the front here. They're members of our prayer team. They would love to pray with you. They would love to give you resources to help you, (coughs) excuse me, on this Christian journey that you have begun today. Please take advantage of that opportunity. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everyone said.